0: What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today,
1: I am joined by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, welcome back, dude. Thank you, my man. It's good to be back with you. It feels like uh, we haven't done these as frequently. We've both been uh, super busy, both deep into our own fat loss phases. So I'm glad to be back <laughs> on with you and being able to uh, to catch up, my man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does seem like it's been a while since we've done these one-on-one episodes. We had a pretty solid streak there where I think we went every week for like 8 weeks. But been a while. I'm glad to be back on the mics together. So, Phyllis and man, what's been going on with you lately? Are you are you done with fat
1: loss now? Yes, so actually um so this past week was actually my final active dieting week within this year's okay. fat loss phase. Uh because last Friday, last Friday evening actually, I had my main shoot for the season. Which was with a professional fitness photographer, and the shoot went extremely well in terms of the conditioning I was able to bring to it, uh, which was really like my main target. A lot of people ask me what was my goal for this, and it was not only to get in the trenches with my own clients. I had one of my pros, Anthony Scalza, who was deep into prep, and we we've been working together almost three years at this point. So it's it's kind of like we do the process together. I always try to uh, to relate to my clients, but. It was also done from a personal perspective because it's been a couple of years since I've dyed it down to this low level of body fat percentage, which is something that honestly I did every single summer. So every summer for over 10 years, because I did professional photo shoots and and professional uh, fitness uh, modeling. I would every summer get ready for shoots, for publications, for bodybuilding.com, for men's fitness. I had you know, a streak of four years that I did a feature with men's fitness magazine every single year when magazines were still prominent. And then last summer, as you very well remember, uh, but for anyone in the audience, I got into a car accident. And so I, I sustained some injuries, uh, some setbacks, and I need to have a series of surgeries last summer. So I spent the majority of last summer pretty much in a bed and like rehabbing and not really being able to train. And so that was the first summer in about a decade that I haven't spent the majority of the season doing photo shoots or getting ready for contest preps um, for different magazines, publications, things of that sort. And honestly, although I've done, you know, at this point, when I look back, I've done 15 shows, so 15 contest preps, and I've done over 100 photo shoots, you know, over the years. The one thing I really value about every, you know, each and every fat loss phase that I go into is how many new lessons and perspectives I pick up along the way. And this is something I don't find a lot of people that aren't experienced dieters are able to get out of the process because they're so fixated on the suffering or on the challenges or on the setbacks. But I'm at the point that my mindset is much different when it comes to the perspective of dieting. This is something that, you know, I'm able to not only acquire more and more of every fat loss phase that I enter, but I'm able to apply and share these with my own clients when they're in fat loss phases of their own. So like for you, I'm able to relate to a lot of what you're going through. You're at the leanest state that you've ever been at. And so you're being a little bit overly critical of yourself. There's days where you feel, you know, that you're not making improvements. And and these are all things that get into our, our thought process, but I've also dealt with it with high level competitors where they become their own worst critic. Like what they see in the mirror is not, objective, they're unable to have an objective viewpoint. And that's really where coaching comes in. And another big thing for me, and this is something I'm a massive believer in is leading from the front. And not only talking the talk from an educational and an overall knowledge perspective, but I also feel I have a duty to my clients, to my mentees, to the individuals that I work with, or even those that, you know, tune into every podcast that I do that, you know, follow my stuff and that really um, get value out of it is to walk the walk as well. And to do so by applying the principles I've learned throughout both my 10 years of coaching, but also you know, through my own dieting experiences and then apply them to myself so that I'm able to help others, you know, develop their best physiques But I can also relate to the struggles that come along with dieting. And I'll tell you, this fat loss phase was one that I faced more setbacks and challenges. It was, I I went 17 weeks. And generally, I'm someone that's able to get in shape within the the context of like 12 to 14 weeks. And I had to extend it just because of business circumstances, stresses in life. And then also, my body just wasn't as responsive at at certain points in the diet as it was previously. Just due to the fact that I I didn't have an extended period of training beforehand, you know, in terms of the fact that last summer, I spent almost three months, pretty much on the couch. And so, you know, this is something that I find, you know, that it really helps me to relate to others and be able to help my clients especially from a psychological perspective. And honestly, I think it's something that so many other coaches they overlook in this space. You know what I mean? Like we have some people that they get so fixated on like or focus on the physique improvement aspect of their goals that they they overlook like they're too heavily focused on their own physiques that they neglect their own clients. And then we have people on the opposite end of the spectrum who are coaches And they get so focused on just getting as many clients as possible that they barely work out themselves. And they, you know, they preach and prescribe protocols, but have never tried them on themselves. So they have like very little idea as to how they work first and foremost, but also how their clients feel, like how those suggestions feel. So a big thing to me when it comes to coaching and just continuously developing my craft and my practice is, you know, I want to do it myself. Uh, You know, it's easy to tell someone how much to eat and how much to train or how much cardio to do, but you only understand the effects that it has on a client both physiologically and psychologically and when you've done it yourself. So this is massively important to me to know that I would never ask a client um, or anyone that I work with to do something that I a have not done or b wouldn't be willing to do. So this has been another productive fat loss phase. I am now in the process. I've um, reverse myself back into my predicted maintenance calories. Uh, my weight has stabilized, uh, you know, after a few pounds coming on from glycogen replenishment, some water weight, things of that sort. Um, also I did do a drying out process for the, uh, photo shoot itself. So I did lose a few pounds, uh, just in, in subcutaneous water retention. Um, so I regained that I gained a couple pounds of just glycogen storage, which, you know, for every gram of glycogen we store, we're going to, you know, generally store three to four grams of water, but there is some research that shows that some people store to 17 grams per gram of glycogen in terms of super compen- uh, compensation effect. So this differs from individual to individual. So I'm up a few pounds, stabilized, conditioning is good. And now for the rest of my photo shoots, I'm just going to eat up into these photo shoots, increase energy availability, get back to even more productive training because I have had some good training cycles, but that's another thing with training. Like, We have to realize that we can't expect to maintain these same off-season training performance and progressions. And so that's something I constantly have to remind myself that we're not shooting for PRs. You know, oftentimes I'll speak to my clients that are in a fat loss phase and I want them to, even if they're not a competitor, I want them to think about it like this. During the diet, you're a physique athlete whose main goal is to train to maintain tissue while we drop body fat. However, during the building phase, you become a performance athlete whose aim is to push performance and PRs to build muscle, but we can't confuse one for the other. So we have to make that switch. There is a periodization to all of these things on how we phase, you know, the phases that we go through. And we have to realize that during the fat loss phase itself, we can't expect training performance to be as good as it was in a building phase. And this is something that I often find people getting, you know, frustrated about. They see some certain performance losses or that they're not able to progress. And you have to realize if you're coming from a building phase, you've been in a surplus for an extended period of time, like I was, and like you were, especially, because you hadn't died for you know deep for the course of a couple of years you know, during the building phases where training performance should be progressing the most and when we should feel our best, we have more energy coming in on a daily basis, both from the diet itself. So exogenous energy, but then, you know, so we're fueling ourselves readily, but then we also have more stored energy on our body in terms of, you know, forms of muscle glycogen and body fat. And a big thing with that is that we have all these reservoirs of energy that are going to fuel performance and recovery, but A big thing I like to do with certain of my athletes when they don't realize the impact that a deficit can have on their performance is to tell them, you know, I have certain athletes that or certain clients that they're fine during an off season when they're in a surplus to go into the gym fasted and have a training session. And I'm not saying to train fasted regularly, but if they have a vacation right. or they have a trip or they have a flight, they're able to go in the gym. And because they have all these exogenous stores, they're able to train and they feel no decrement to their performance. They see no drop or decrease in training performance. Then I tell them, listen, I just want you to see the effect that a deficit and a lack of body fat has on your training performance. So go and fasted, just have some water, just have an intra workout drink, some very minimal calories. And they see a massive drop off. Because they're not having that exogenous energy source to the the uh, you know addition of you know substrates from the diet, so it's a big thing that we always have to remind ourselves about. And this was just another great learning experience. And uh, I look forward to uh, the rest of this photo shoot and then getting back into a building phase. My man, how about you?
0: Absolutely, dude. Um, a lot to unpack there, man. It's interesting to like know where people are on their diet because also even like it seems like you have a lot more energy, even, like in this conversation. i like, a lot That's more, up- you have regulation. a lot more to say. I even, yeah, like, my hands
1: are moving, my knees oh, yeah. are going up, so you know, subconsciously. So I'm up regulating that energy expenditure, and that is a great thing about increasing energy availability. And, and a lot of people will, you know, right now, there's a lot of I don't want to say debate. I want to say maybe discussion, heated discussion about the the concept of reverse dieting. And I don't care if you call it a reverse diet, you call it a maintenance phase, you call it a dynamic maintenance phase. We are increasing energy availability. And with that, we are going to upregulate multiple aspects of someone's total daily energy expenditure. You're going to have better energy levels to put more into your training. So your exercise activity, thermogenesis is going to increase. You're going to have less uh, subconscious, subconscious reductions in meat. You're going to be moving more. Like I'm moving with my hands. I haven't moved like this on the camera with you in quite some time. So unfortunately the audience doesn't see this, but I I don't stand, I don't sit still, especially because I'm eating about 220 grams more carbohydrates per day than I was previously. So I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm very happy. And, um, I'm feeling the energy from that. And then also just other, you know, obviously as body weight comes up, BMR is going to come up as I restore muscle glycogen, that is lean body mass. That's going to increase BMR. Even just the addition of extra calories, we see that going into a surplus for an extended period of time is going to raise your basal metabolic rate. And we see that in overfeeding studies. And so there's so many aspects of your not, you know, even the thermic effect of feeding, you know, I added about 800 calories to my diet. So that's another, you know, give or take 80 calories that I'm burning per day. And despite that being a small amount, when you add up all these parts of the equation we're upregulating energy expenditure so you could call it building metabolic capacity you can call it like i like saying increasing energy availability and increasing energy expenditure through the energy flux model and so regardless of how you want to label it or sell it to people it is there's many benefits of during a dieting phase increasing energy availability once you get to your target body fat percentage or your target conditioning level, which I did get to. And now I'm able to feed up into the subsequent uh, photo shoots that I have for the rest of the month.
0: Absolutely. So when you transition into a building phase here, are there any specific body parts you're really trying to focus on? I know we've talked about the specialization phases you run in the past. Are you like planning to focus on anything specifically there?
1: Yeah, honestly, this um, this dieting phase really showed me that my delts are way behind where they were previously. And that was a body part, was always a very stubborn body part for me. It is one right. of the areas that I have probably the highest um, maximum recoverable volume for. Uh, so in comparison to other body parts, my like MRV in terms of my chest is between generally between 21 to 24 sets. My back is, you know, around 24 sets. My delts can take up to 30 plus sets. And these are working sets even at zero RR. So this is something that I've had to even go up to a five day frequency for my delts. And I think it really comes down to the fact that Uh, A, it's something that doesn't receive a lot of damage. Keep Mm -hmm. in mind, like I'm talking really side delts and and my uh, uh, posterior delts. And so it wouldn't be 30 direct sets, but indirectly, because on my pulling movements for back day, I am hitting a large amount of posterior delt work. Um, It's going to be a lot of uh, direct side or uh, lateral uh, work or side, uh, dealt work that I'm gonna have to focus on this off season, because that was one of the areas that it's one of the hardest for me to build. And then one of the first to go. And I noticed that in this year's photo shoots, I always take, um, anytime I do a photo shoot, I get the raw images from a photographer. So they're unedited. I really want to be able to objectively assess my physique. And really, when I look at comparisons, uh, I've worked with this photographer before and we've done fitness shoots. And so I was able to give look at raw comparisons of you know, this year as compared to 2020, 2019, and 2018, and one of the biggest lagging body parts in comparison to where I've been previously was my delts. And it's something that I just didn't put as much focus on during my previous building phase. I also didn't have as an extended of a building phase as I did. So I will be focusing on that, probably doing a leg specialization cycle at some part because uh, last year, usually how I do specialization cycles for myself is I wave load them uh, in terms of my my uh, focus will be, you know, directly on, you know, one to two body parts, generally a larger body part and a smaller body part for at least 12 weeks, generally 12 to 20 weeks. And then I will go, I will put that on the back burner to give it some some more recovery. And then I will focus on other body parts this year. I only got to rotate through uh, two specialization cycles. I did one for my chest and my biceps and did one for my back, my triceps. So legs did not get its own specialization block of three to five or six months. So I do want to focus on that. And the reason I didn't do it this past year, a was lack of time. And B was the fact that, um, I had certain surgeries to my midsection and I was really having a, a very hard time with uh spinal stability and, and, um, Really, uh, loading, and so this was something that I've had to work on more of a rehabilitation perspective with a lot of core work uh, throughout the course of this year to be able to do things like squats and and different variations. Even RDLs were were quite um, intense for me to get back up to the working weights that I've done previously.
0: That has to be a weird, the like a core surgery specifically just has to be such a weird shift and like trying to return back to normal training and feeling like so much weaker there than normal.
1: It's not only that, but I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you when I did my last recap of my photo shoot, the first photo shoot I did for the summer, but I even found, I think off air, I discuss this with you. We were talking about posing and like how I've been having you do mm-hmm. certain poses to get ready because it is, it's, it's partially muscle memory. And what I noticed in these shots was that I was unable to fully contract and really get like, I was lean. However, my ability to display that it doesn't matter how lean you are. doesn't matter that you're 5%, 6% body fat. It is what you display in front of the camera or on top of a stage. And that was something that I generally had a good advantage on in terms of fitness modeling because I come from a, a competitive bodybuilding perspective or from a background. However, this year, because there was a large portion of the year that I did not work on direct ab work, but also I was not contracting my abs because there was discomfort due to the surgeries that I had. Um, it made it much more difficult to actually get shots that actually visibly showed my my abs. So it was really up until this the shoot, which I practiced. You know, I you know, would go in front in front of the mirror and practice. And this is all of my muscle connection, but I would feel like I was contracting because I had discomfort. You know, in in months mm-hmm. previous, because I had that surgery, I had been cut. You know, open in the midsection. I also have a scar from it, so that's that's not the most appealing. However. Um, it was from a contraction perspective and it's just like anything else. If you get scar tissue in an area, especially an area with poor blood flow. So think about your abdomen. It's not something like if I got shoulder surgery, I would be rotating this shoulder. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. much there would be getting blood flow into that area. So the rehabilitation process may have limited the amount of scar tissue that I got because it was used so readily. However, when it's an area that you don't use actively, like, yes, I, I brace my core throughout the course of the day, but it's nothing like that. I'm going through a complete flexion and retraction, like throughout the course of a day. And so, really, what it came down to is I had to practice and really get that mind and muscle connection back into the, that area, not only from a exercise um, execution perspective, but just from a displaying, you know, a visibility perspective.
0: Super interesting stuff, and again, like challenges you wouldn't even consider before all of that. Um, but I'm really excited to see, man, what the rest of the shoots look like, and also to for you to keep us updated on your building phase, because that's going to be a fun process. I feel like we've both been in fat loss and talking about fat loss for quite some time. And I think it's also very valuable for our clients to like hear what the other side of the process looks like. Yeah, so from my end, I mean, Absolutely. I feel like you're pretty in the loop as far as how things are going. I think we talk most every day via email as of late, but yeah, things are going good. Um, Very happy with how this fat loss phase has gone. I know there was a one week, a couple of weeks ago, right before we deloaded, where I was feeling a bit down about where I was at. But after that, man, I've been feeling great, Um, feel much leaner than I've been before. Like I mentioned to you, like seeing new separation, the quads, things like that, that I've never been able to see before, especially with us doing the refeed. Um, It's really cool to see like, let's see, we're still 19 days away from the shoot. And again, to already know, like I'm for sure a lot leaner than I've ever been before. So I'm really excited to get the result from that. I'm also just excited to, as you know, I have a lot going on that week. Um, so within that, I'm excited to kind of just also get that done with and kind of from there, move on and get into some building. I'm really excited. I'm really excited with like the specialization phases and things of that nature. I know we discussed like long-term, definitely want to focus on bringing up lower body quads specifically. So I'm really excited to, to just get into that, but I really can be happier with how this diet has gone. And it's been, it's been a very good experience. I feel like to your point, like the first time I got ready for a photo shoot, That helped me so much in my ability to help other clients get leaner where I didn't necessarily I didn't learn anything new from like, here's how we set, quote unquote, better macros or anything of that nature. But so I don't want to like downplay the importance of like be understanding what you're doing, of course, understanding the science, but a lot of coaching isn't as much macros and like the perfect training program as it is understanding the psychological side of things. Right. And as you said, like, there's so much benefit to just having been there yourself. And I think your ability to coach people through that improves every single time you go through that process yourself. And even like in this fat loss phase, like constantly our ability to help clients is getting better and better um and our ability to like we're working with more and more people that do want to get just absolutely peeled which is fun but i don't think anyone on our team could do this if we were doing this ourselves so um man i'm feeling in a great spot i'm super happy with how things are going i'm very happy to be eating more food for the next couple of days but yeah that's about it from my end
1: absolutely dude it's been great seeing you along the process and helping you through this and being able to communicate with you and you know it's great because i've been through this and right now like you know this week for anyone in the audience like jeremiah doesn't post any of his progress pictures or very rarely this is the leanest he's ever been and this is from an objective perspective yes i am his coach but prior to working with him a we were already good friends i had already mentored you i've seen your professional photo shoots i've seen i even had you send me over hey listen from your objective perspective, what is the leanest you've ever been? And you and I pulled that up on my computer on my monitors uh, this past week, or actually yesterday being that your check-in was yesterday. And I looked at a side-to-side comparison your physique is is in a much better place now. And we still have, you know, approximately two and a half weeks prior to your uh, actual photo shoot. So we're in a very good place. Uh, We are trialing out refeeds now. So we're doing a two-day back-to-back refeed, uh, not only to increase energy availability, but to restore glycogen, to replenish glycogen storage, and then also really trial. And this is something I really like utilizing with my photo shoot clients or my contest prep clients, where anyone that has a target goal that we're really trying to peak the actual physique for is to restore energy availability through a two-day refeed format kind of like the bill campbell 5-2 study so we see many benefits from that from a training performance perspective from a recovery perspective from even just And Bill's study, actually, if you look at the literature, you look at the study, they were able to retain more dry, fat free mass from the inclusion of refeeds due to the fact. And what he postulates is based, you know, I've spoken to him off air about this, is that the increase in carbohydrates, seeing that they increase insulin secretion, they're going to have anti catabolic effects. And we know that dieting is a catabolic stimulus. So anything we could do, whether it's, you know, properly timing protein or, you know, maintaining an adequate training stimulus, these are all anabolic inputs as are the addition of carbohydrates. So your refeed specifically is a carbohydrate-based refeed. So all the calorie increases that were made were made based off carbohydrates. And so we're increasing, you know, that, Ability to replenish depleted glycogen storages. We're gonna see how you fill out. You know, get the benefits from the training perspective, but then also it's gonna give me a better ability to see what your your physique actually looks like because we aren't our depleted physique. We aren't what we look like fats in the morning, and this is why you know specifically this week I have you going to a commercial gym. I want to see what you look like with fluids in you, with electrolytes in you, with a meal, you know, some excess car, you know, extra carbohydrates in you, and then with a pump because a you know for anyone out there that doesn't know Jeremiah's lighting's not the best at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not blaming him for, but it's not giving a realistic view of his physique but when we get under lights you know i really like this as an advantage because there's a lot of people that you see on social media and they use the best lighting they use like this epic lighting you actually use the opposite you use the worst lighting however (laughs) it's going to play to our advantage because when you get in front of a professional photo shoot and there is lighting being you know done and there is a professional photographer that can play with certain you know dress or certain aspects of this lighting fixtures and just making sure to maximize what you display on your physique we're going to bring a look that you've never brought by far. So I'm very excited for the process. And uh, just, I'm really happy with how you've responded both from a physical perspective, but also from a mental perspective, because I think along the course of this process, because of my experience, and then also because of our relationship, there's been times where you've, May have overlooked things if you were dieting yourself. Some of the stressors in your life, the building of a business, different you know personal and business perspective, uh, our business things that were coming up, and we've been able to pull back. When I know, and you've told me, you would keep pushing, and that wouldn't be the right move. So this is a good reminder to yourself, and then anyone out there that coaches need coaches. Just like when I get into a deep into a fat loss phase, like I, I called up one of my mentors or one of my mentors to help peek me for this photo shoot because I knew that. I was losing objectivity with myself this past week, but now I'm able to take back over the reins and go into increasing energy availability because I know I'm already at my target body fat percentage or my target conditioning checkpoint, essentially. I've checked that off, and now I'm just increasing slowly but steadily my carbohydrate intake and my energy intake uh, to really just dissipate fatigue, drop off some of that cortisol-induced water retention that comes from, you know, uh, hypochloric dieting. And now I'm just going to roll into the rest of the shoots that aren't as uh, important or they weren't the main target shoot as this past Friday's was. So I'm looking forward to the rest of the process. Really looking forward to that week, which I, I won't hint at it anymore, but it's an exciting week for Jeremiah to say, at least he's got a vacation planned and many other things. So I'm really looking forward to being a part of the process and seeing you through it.
0: Yeah, man. Likewise. Um, yeah, and to speak to the coach aspect as well, Like I, I feel like one of the biggest things I've learned is definitely from you're in, just like being more reactive with the process like how we have implemented refeeds. when i've talked through like when i'm more stressed like i've taken a lot of value from that and that's the cool thing about coaching is you can always be learning that's what it always blows my mind i talk to a decent amount of new coaches like in my dms and it's hey i want to like learn how to be a great coach where i want to learn how to build my business where do i start and hey have you ever worked with a coach yourself Like, no, I don't really want to spend the money. And like that is just something that just blows my mind where there's still constantly, like you, yourself, one of the smartest people I know still have mentors that you're learning from constantly. And as I feel like being coached through the process, I think it's personally one of the best ways to really just learn. But man, we better get into questions. I know we have about 35 minutes here. We've got quite a few questions stacked up. So I'm going to kick the first one over to you, which is why do people store and hold body fat differently? I tend to hold stubborn body fat in my lower body, and it's always a problem area even when I lose fat.
1: All right. So this is more on both stubborn fat and then fat storage patterns. So this was a a female follower of mine that's a listener of both your show and my show that, that threw this question at me. So I wanted to go over this a little bit. And really, when we look at it, body fat distribution and storage are highly influenced And determined by two things generally. It's our genetics. So we have to realize there's a genetic card in this, but I won't cover that because that's going to be something that's out of our control. But the other aspect that I do want to hit on, just to bring awareness to it, is it's especially dependent and determined by our gender. As males and females both store and lose fat differently in terms of where they store it and where they lose it from, especially in terms of the time course of body fat loss. So, from a broad-based perspective, when we look at fat storage pattern in males, we see that males tend to store fat more centrally around like the gut and the organs. So think the beer belly, like the typical like average American male has excess adiposity in the midsection. And this happens to be, we have to realize it's not only that we store fat between sexes or between genders differently, we also store different types of fat. So for males, we tend to store more visceral fat which is associated with higher rates of insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease and this is your, these are one of the main reasons why men are more predisposed to these issues than women are and honestly estrogen's protective especially from a cardiovascular perspective so until women get postmenopausal they really don't see, we don't see their incidences of cardiovascular disease increase because at that point in the you know in the um, i guess cycle of life, uh, they're seeing decrements, very large decrements in their estrogen production. But although visceral fat is more harmful to our health, so it's more insulin resistant. It is um, you know, more it's fat stored around the organs, so it's more deleterious from a health perspective, it's also easier to liberate and will be the first fat that gets burned and lost during a fat loss phase. So men, if you have excess visceral adiposity, you will actually lose that first. And I've worked with many clients that were in the um, that had obesity or were in the overweight categories and often they're losing weight. So we see it on the scale. But if we were to look visually, you're not seeing a lot of, it's not seeing noticeable fat loss. And it isn't until we get through that visceral body fat that's deeply stored you know, under the organs and we're not seeing that you're actually going to see visible progress in terms of subcutaneous body fat. Now, when we look at females, on the other hand, they have different storage patterns in terms of fat. So women store more fat in their lower body and especially around their hips and their thighs. And this is more subcutaneous fat. So that's like the jiggly fat. You know, that's what most people will think about it as which is less unhealthy from like a metabolic perspective, but it's also harder to liberate and burn, which is why many females struggle to lose this fat in these regions. And this is essentially like an energy storage depot that women were meant to have from an evolutionary perspective. Because really, if we look at it from evolution um like if we look back into evolutionary times really what this fat was meant to do was it was stored energy for when they got pregnant so there's a biological reason as to why females store more fat here now when we get past the differences in genders we also have to realize that a big influence as to how we liberate and burn body fat it's a process so it's not just like you lose weight you lose body fat yes that you need an energy deficit we need all these things we know about energy balance but the way in which fat loss works is on fat cells, we have two main receptors. And this is actually something we've spoken about briefly on the podcast in one of our Q and A's regarding yohimbine know, supplementation in terms of alpha receptors. And so when we look at fat cells, there's two main receptors. We have beta receptors and we have alpha receptors. And how, you know, a good way to think about this is think about beta receptors as, you know, they act as the accelerator, meaning when catecholamines get released, and bind to them, they increase fat mobilization so that fat can be burned for energy. Now on the opposite side, we have alpha receptors and they act as the break. So think about like beta receptors as the gas and alpha receptors as the break. And they put a break on fat loss, meaning when alpha receptors are activated, they inhibit fat mobilization that limits fat burning and fat loss. Now the thing with this is we have different amounts of these beta receptors and these alpha receptors throughout different regions of our body and in different fat cells and in, in the course of where they're located. So if you have more beta receptors than alpha receptors in an area, it's gonna be easier to mobilize fat in that area. Whereas if you have the opposite, you know, and if you have more alpha receptors in an area than beta receptors, it's going to be harder to liberate body fat. And the reason that I go into this is because women's lower body fat, specifically the hips and thighs, can have up to nine times the amount of alpha receptors than beta receptors. So think about it. They have more breaks on the fat loss process which makes it easier for them to store fat here because it's, it's blunting the effect of fat loss in those areas or fat liberation. And it makes it harder for them to lose fat from. So when, you know, whereas when we look at visceral fat, there's more beta receptors in this fat and there's a low amount of alpha receptors, which is why when we see men or we even see this, you know, fat loss in general, visceral fat is the first to go when we enter a fat loss phase because it's so easy to mobilize. And really, if we look at it from a health perspective, we would want to lose that fat first. So this is... Like we have to think about everything from an evolutionary perspective. And I know a lot of people, maybe their background isn't in physiology or in biology, but if we really look at everything from energy balance, to any of these concepts, these all come from a, bio, uh, you know, or metabolic adaptation, these all come from biology. And so we can't change our bodies, or our natural body fat, predisposition however we can control how much fat we lose and we need to do so so really when it comes down to losing stubborn body fat in order to get rid of these stubborn fat areas so in this female's case this was her th- hips and thighs really just need to be patient as much as no one wants to hear that but you need to be consistent with your dietary um, intervention with your, your consistent with your calorie deficit and lose enough total fat to tap into these stubborn areas and once you do and you get lean enough, the body's not going to have anywhere else to pull, you know, body fat from. So once you get to these stubborn areas, you generally see that you're consistently losing fat there. But a lot of people, you know, I see, and I've worked with many individuals that they get frustrated in the process because they think they have these stubborn areas. But, you know, a lot of females tend to focus on those. However, we have to realize men have the same thing. We have it in our low stomach and our low back. And it's not until we get super lean, you know, think about the areas in which you get lean from. It's generally like your delts, your arms, all the the, um, exterior body parts, you get lean from like the inside out and then from like the top down. And so really what we have to think about is that you just have to be patient with the process because I've never seen someone that's gotten super lean, like stage lean, that's had really big issues with stubborn body fat. And so with that, it's just about being consistent with the process, realizing that we all, you know, especially from a gender perspective, we all store fat differently and we have to work with the cards that were dealt. And when it comes to body fat, patternings and body fat distribution it really does come down to genetics and then gender. And so neither of us, you know, none of us out there can change that. However, we can control our dietary habits, our activity habits. Another thing is, you know, exercise increases catecholamine release. So that's going to help with fat mobilization and fat burning. You know, things, you know, there are certain supplement interventions that you can utilize. And so there's many things that we could do to slide the, our hand in a a more positive direction, but we have to play the cards we're dealt. So don't get, you know, for this individual, for this person, or for anyone out there, don't get frustrated by the process. You will lose that fat. You just need to lose total, a total or um, large amount of total fat to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just understanding that that is no very normal body fat distribution for a female. First and foremost, like I talked to so many women where it's, Hey, my upper body is super lean, but I'm so frustrated with my lower body. And as, again, as you said, that probably will for most women be the last area to get lean and that's normal. So more than anything, more than any like special hack. It is very interesting talking about like the ratio of alpha receptors versus beta receptors, but, um, more than any special hack, it is just a matter of patience. Again, it's not necessarily like we have to do anything special. It's a lot of times we do have a little bit more body fat to lose than we'd expect to really like, if you really want to see like shape and new striations in your lower body, for example, that you haven't seen before, it might entail dieting a little bit longer or having to push a little bit more than you'd expect. Um, so with you, specifically, is that something you find yourself using with a lot of the women you coach in fat loss phases or not all that frequently?
1: really depends on the response to it. So as you very well know, I've utilized Yohimbine with you and, and there is, you know, both, you know, with everything, there's a gimme and there's a gotcha. So there are mm-hmm. benefits and there are drawbacks. So really how Yohimbine works is it helps fat loss by blocking that alpha-2 receptor. So it's an alpha-2 uh, receptor antagonist, meaning that it just like um, the alpha receptors put the brake on fat loss, it takes the break off that fat loss. So it allows for more fat mobilization. But there are a lot of people that are a good amount of people that get um, anxiety from it or they get nerves from it and things of that sort. So it's not appropriate for everyone. So it's very individual dependent. And also we have to realize is that it only works if you're in a non-insulinogenic state. So there are research studies and there are people that will quote these and say, it's not effective for fat loss. But if you actually look at the methods section of the the paper, you're not just looking at the abstract. You'll see that these people were not in a fasted state. So they already had insulin within their body. So what insulin does, it also blocks fat loss and it blocks the mobilization of fat cells because now you have, when insulin's present in the body, it's shifting more towards utilizing carbohydrates rather than fat for energy. So now you aren't going through aerobic metabolism. So you have to use a facet first and foremost, you need to have a tolerance to it and you have to build up to a good amount of dose that you'll be able to um, actually get the benefits for. So if someone's going to utilize it and I'm going to use it with a client, I'm going to make sure it's done in a facet state before some aerobic activity, whether that's a morning walk, that's facet cardio. uh, But I do find that it's, When it comes to stubborn body fat, if we're looking at a supplement that's efficacious or effective for it, especially with females, this is going to be the best one for them. You know, because they have that evolutionary mechanism where they have more fat on their body to support pregnancy, where... that's the area that they have so much more alpha receptors. So utilizing something that's going to take that break off fat loss can be beneficial, but it is always person specific. Another big thing that, you know, I want to suggest, and this isn't body fat loss, but guys, like one of the best ways to change, you know, quote unquote change or hack into your, your fat loss, uh, fat pattern storage is to build more muscle. So if you build muscle in that area, it doesn't matter what body fat percentage you have, you know, Granted, I'm not saying you could be excess in, in terms of body fat, but if you build more muscle in an area, it's going to look leaner. And we know that. We know that muscular individuals, I've worked with many former you know, collegiate football players that they make higher body fat percentages look good. And adding muscle is really the hack to all of this. So if you want to build your shape, you want to make a certain body fat or body part look better, specialize in it and build more muscle there. And that will make whatever body fat um patternings or predisposition you have look more favorable especially when you do diet down because there are so many people that they diet down they're unhappy with how they look even if they get super lean because they didn't have enough muscle to begin with so there's two ways we diet long enough to get the stubborn body fat off and another thing is building muscle and really focusing on that building phase on increasing the amount of muscle tissue you have on your frame to better the look of your physique to better the proportions This is especially important for females uh, especially those that spend many years in the cyclical dieting phase where they're really in a state of low energy availability at all times and they're not spending enough time and energy focused on building muscle and building their physiques. So two suggestions, be patient, lose enough body fat, stay in an elongated fat loss phase. It is going to take a long period of time, but as with anything in life, in any phase, whether it's a muscle building phase or it's your career or it's a financial endeavor, good things take time first and foremost. And second of all, build more muscle.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, man. And that's like in so many of the transformations that like I share on our page, that's always something I like to emphasize. Like, hey, maybe there was some body fat loss in this transformation, but just as important from like a body composition you shift you see, is this individual first almost always spent a good amount of time focusing on building muscle? Um, cool. I don't have too much else to add there. So the next question we have, which really ties into this one well. Thoughts on fat burners. Are they beneficial or bogus so within this i mean we just talked about you him being quite extensively which i think we could definitely that's going to be a product or that's going to be a component of many fat burners that will be helpful i think that more than anything i like to approach this from like what's our hierarchy of importance here right so i remember first fat burner i bought when i was in college and this was i was so broke at the time it was like i think my budget was like 50 dollars a week for like gas and food combined and this is when i was like selling my plasma so I could like go buy pre-workout and protein powder, or whatever. Yeah, rough times. Um, But I remember buying a fat burner and I at the time really didn't understand nutrition at all. I was like, man, I can't wait to get shredded just because I'm taking this fat burner. I didn't change a single thing with my diet and nothing happened, right? So I think it's kind of looking at this as, I don't always just like to apply like the muscle strength pyramids to everything. But I think if we look at that, like we have this, let's make sure we have this piece nailed before we focus on the next piece, right? We have your overall adherence, we have your calorie intake, we have your macronutrients, we have your micronutrients. Um, and then like further up there is like, once we have all these other factors dialed in, maybe we'll start to see some difference with supplementation. And I would say the same thing goes for fat burgers. Um, as someone that's been in the supplement industry for a very long time, I think you can elaborate on this much better than I can. Um, Absolutely. I don't think that we should like, overplay the benefits of them by any means again if you don't have all these other factors dialed in if you're not extremely consistent if you're not consistently in a calorie deficit even if you're not focusing on like fueling yourself going into your training and making sure your training quality is good like focus on your sleep focus on all those things before you add in fat burners but again i think see fat burners is kind of like that last little push where yes we could potentially see some difference but again it doesn't come before any of those other factors
1: no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And um as you mentioned, I spent over a decade working within the supplement industry. And honestly, this was probably one of the most frequently asked questions that I received. You know, people would always ask me, especially with me being lean, whether, you know, fat burners actually work or if they're just another rip-off supplement which is overhyped by marketing. And in certain cases, yes they are and in certain cases yes, they're really effective. But like you kind of mentioned I, I do want to hit on this before we go into this. Like I'll, I'll go through some mechanisms of action and how certain fat loss ingredients or fat loss supplements can work. But it's really you know important to make it clear that fat loss cannot happen without first creating a deficit. So in your case, Jeremiah, you threw a fat burner on top of something. You can't just take some you know supplement because it's labeled a fat burner. You know, and expect to lose weight and fat while eating in a surplus. You're gonna be sadly right. mistaken. It's not going to be effective. And so, however, as long as a deficit is there, there are certain ergogenic aids that can aid in fat loss through different means. So there's different categories, and a lot of times they just kind of get um looped into one. So you just hear fat loss, you know, fat burners. And what we have to realize is these ingredients and these compounds work in different mechanisms. So or or for different means and for different reasons. So when we look at ingredients, say, like caffeine, they're going to help with increasing your energy and they're going to thus have an effect on your activity levels, can help with your training performance, can help with your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's all going to increase your energy expenditure and your overall calorie output or calorie burn for the day, which impacts the calories outside of the energy balance equation. Now there's other ingredients that are generally within fat burners. And often I don't utilize... You know, unless I know a company or I, I went through their product label, I won't suggest to my clients specific fat burners. However, I'll go through different ingredients. So there's others that could be labeled as appetite suppressants. So they're working on the energy inside of the equation. So some will help to suppress appetite so that hunger isn't as big of an issue because we see that during a diet, we're going to see increases in hunger. And lack of satiety is one of the main reasons why people find it so hard to stick to a diet and adhere to it. And then there are other ingredients that activate certain metabolic pathways or help with nutrient partitioning. And that's in another aspect that could help with just total calorie burn or where you're partitioning nutrients. So, you know, in terms of like appetite suppressants, one that's that's pretty efficacious from a research perspective is going to be uh, 5-HTP, which is a direct precursor to serotonin, um, can cause weight loss, but it's usually indirectly because it's helping people consume less calories. So you're getting serotonin release, it's helping with mood. And it's also been shown in certain lines of literature to help lower carb cravings um, because it impacts the same neurotransmitters that carbs do. So generally like, you know, before bed, we would want to get some carbohydrates because it can release serotonin, which is going to go downstream to melatonin eventually help with sleep quality. 5-HTP can have a positive effects, both on sleep quality, but then also helping with uh, sati- or uh, curbing cravings or lowering appetite through the same mechanisms uh, that that does. So overall, there are certain fat burning ingredients or you know ingredients that are in fat burners that are effective. However, it is really important to do your research behind things. I would suggest that anyone out there, if you guys do have interest, go to third party um, companies, companies that are represented, that they're um, third-party verified in terms of what's on their label is in the products themselves. Make sure that they have they don't have prop- uh, proprietary labels, meaning that you don't see the amounts because an ingredient or a supplement is only as good as the ingredients that make it up. So for instance, in the case of creatine, we know that the efficacious dose is de- generally between three to five grams taken every single day. But if some you know company has 500 milligrams of creatine monohydrate pixie dust into a Um, into a product, you're not going to get all the efficacious benefits that come with creatine dosage. So do your research first and foremost, go to brands that are trustworthy, that have individuals behind it, that, you know, they're more about the integrity of the products and utilizing clinically backed and clinically validated evidence-based ingredients and dosages. And trying to get the most, and I really like when people, and I do this for all things in life, I like to isolate changes. So if you're going to add in a certain thing, don't change everything at once. First, create the deficit. Get your, you know, there, like Jeremiah mentioned, there's a hierarchy to fat loss. And it first starts with energy balance, making sure you're in a deficit. Then we look at your macronutrient distribution. And most importantly, right there, we're going to make sure that we have sufficient and high protein intake to help with satiety, help with muscle maintenance, help with um, hunger management. Um, it's going to increase the thermic effective feeding. Then we go to fats, making sure you have enough essential fats for you know hormone levels, for um, the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins, and then enough carbohydrates to fuel training performance. Then we go to your micronutrients, making sure that all those things are in check. And then we can move on to nutrient timing. And then from there, the last thing you should be looking at is supplements. But if you are going to add supplements to the equation, make sure all the other areas within that hierarchy of importance are dialed in first so that when you do add in a fat burner, you do notice and you're able to track whether that has made a significant impact either on your energy levels or if you're taking an appetite suppressant, that it's actually leading you to experiencing less hunger than you did previously. But don't make rapid changes where you induce an energy deficit and then you throw a fat burner right on top and you expect, or, you know, you're in a fat loss phase and you decide to put yourself in an even greater deficit and expect the fat burner to rescue you and then you may not get the same effect or even notice it because say you were in a 500 calorie deficit and you decide hey i'm going to buy this fat burner and now i'm going to go to a thousand calorie deficit well it might not offset hunger enough for you to even notice I mean, it might not increase your energy levels enough to even notice the fact that you've taken 500 additional calories out of your diet and doubled your deficit. So we have to do things in isolation. We have to realize that there is patience and time that needs to be given and taken with everything that we do to really be able to isolate changes and monitor the progress or lack of progress that something delivers us.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of times when it comes to like, if you're not seeing any progress in your fat loss phase, and definitely not specific to the individual that's asking this question, but rather a lot of times when I get questions like this, it's almost like, and again, not speaking to the individual that asks this question, because I don't know if this is the case, but a lot of times it's almost like, Hey, you might be asking the wrong questions, right? Where, Are we making progress at all? First, again, can we look to like, what's your consistency like? What are all these other factors like? And again, we have to make sure we've looked at that before we look at this as like the thing that's going to save you. Because again, it'll probably be a relatively small difference that we see. Again, there are some benefits, but they probably won't be massive. All right. So next up, I'm going to push this one back over to you. What are your thoughts on using artificial sweeteners, especially during a diet? I constantly hear different opinions about diet products and whether they're helpful or harmful for fat loss and health.
1: Right. So the usage of artificial sweeteners, or if we want to label them non-nutritive sweeteners or sugar substitutes, honestly, is something that continues to be a really highly debated topic within nutrition And it's something that I get questions about all the time from clients and I've realized that many are confused on. So this individual in particular had heard, uh, they actually sent me a video. I'm not going to name the influencer that they sent me, but it was someone within the health sphere that was demonizing essentially artificial sweeteners. But then we have other people on the opposite end of the spectrum that see, you know, some see artificial sweeteners as a great alternative that can help kick, you know, sweet cravings and lower someone's total daily calorie intake. And then like this individual had sent me this video and wanted my opinions on, which I, I decided, you know, I told him, listen, if you rephrase the question, I don't do call out videos or I don't go on podcasts and, and call out people. I really believe in putting out evidence-based information and also such good quality information that you're able to disseminate whether you want to believe what I'm speaking about or not, rather than calling out a specific individual and speaking on what they spoke about. And so that's really my, my mindset in all these type of things. Um, I don't believe in really, you know, singling someone out for, for their, you know, everyone's entitled to their own beliefs, uh, but I will present the evidence. And so, you know, we have others that will, you know, they see, you know, artificial sweeteners kind of as a devil and they think they should be avoided entirely. And even there's certain individuals that will suggest that you should just use regular sugar instead. And so when we're looking at it from the concept of a dieting scenario, uh, we have to realize that You know, there are a lot of claims out there that aren't evidence-backed. So there are certain people that are opponents to artificial sweeteners uh, that will claim that using them will increase blood sugar levels uh, and spike insulin and disrupt digestion and cause fat gain. So there's all these claims. Now, if, you know, as we actually look into the research, there's been more and more quality data, including meta-analysis just in this past year, there's been two that I looked at um, recently. So we're looking at high levels, you know, high levels in the hierarchy of evidence, including randomized control trials and systematic reviews and meta-analysis, not just observational studies that have been done on artificial sweeteners. And we're seeing that they're safe to use first and foremost. So they're safe from a health perspective. They can help with weight loss management and weight loss in and of itself because they're a great method of reducing calories. And they're also useful in the mitigation of issues related to insulin resistance and diabetes. And we actually see in a lot of control trials that when they introduce artificially sweetened beverages or artificially sweetened ingredients or products to different uh, populations, even disease populations like those with type 2 diabetes, that they see reduced markers of insulin resistance, including things like your HbA1c, which is a three-month average of your blood glucose readings. We see lower fasting insulin, and then we also see improvements in HOMA-RR. So one of the biggest claims that I hear in those in that camp against artificial sweeteners is that conf- you know consuming artificial sweeteners can cause fat gain. And they say that they make this claim based on the fact that they cause a spike in insulin that comes as a result of your, your brain essentially detecting that you've taken in a sugary substance, which increases your blood sugar. So, you know, from first, you know, I understand why some of my clients are confused because it makes sense. Like you would think, all right, well, yeah, I am getting something sweet. It must be, you know, setting something off in the brain, but you know, They, you know, these same proponents will claim that because insulin is now elevated, that your body is now storing fat. However, the issue with this claim is that, first of all, we don't see in the literature that artificial sweeteners cause a noticeable increase in insulin or blood glucose levels in the majority of people, including those with type 2 diabetes who consume them. So that's the first thing. We don't see elevations in these parameters, even in randomized control trials that are highly controlled and long studies, you know, eight to 12 weeks long. However, even if they did, We store and gain fat from being in an excess of calories, not from insulin in and of itself because we get an insulin secretion even from whey isolate. So if that was the case, like we'd all be gaining fat from drinking whey protein. So that's not the case. And so these are just proponents of like the insulin hypothesis of fat gain, which has long been debunked. So if you're someone that's using artificial uh, sweeteners to better adhere to your diet, uh, or you're replacing sugar-sweetened beverages and foods with lower-calorie, sh- you know, um, artificially sweetened alternatives to get into an even deeper deficit. Using these things will actually enhance your fat loss, not inhibit it. So ultimately, you know, in my my belief and just based on the evidence that has been presented, you know, artificial sweeteners, they're a great alternative, which can be helpful in your attempts to manage your weight and calorie intake, especially in a dieting phase, where you could substitute a higher energy density item that's sugar sweetened, whether it be uh, sugar sweetened soda, um, fruit juices, or it's even foods with a lower energy density item, which the calories in them have been significantly decreased through the use of artificial sweeteners. So personally, like when it comes to clients and they ask me about this, I always give it up to them. Like if they want to utilize these, if there's something that morally they they don't want to utilize them, Hey, by all means, but you know, uh, often during a dieting phase, I'll suggest, Hey, listen, you can utilize something like a diet soda because it's going to allow you to save calories. We're going to be better able to allocate those calories that we save towards more uh, satiating and micronutrient dense food sources that are actually going to fill you up and help you better adhere to the diet, and it's also taking these items are most likely going to help you better manage cravings, lower your calorie uh, uh, intake without you know impacting satiety. They're going to allow you for more freedom and flexibility, some more flavors. They're going to lower appetite, and they're going to provide you with some sweetness. And we actually see there's actually been some recent studies that I have looked at, and I don't want this to take get taken out of hand, but they've done. Randomized control trials looking at replacing sugar-sweetened beverages with either diet soda or in the other group, when they do you know crossover groups, they have them replace them with water and they actually see more spontaneous calorie reductions from the group utilizing diet sodas. And what a lot of researchers postulate is that those who are predisposed or have a habit of consuming sugar-sweetened beverages on a regular basis, so these are individuals that utilize them within their daily routine that when they switch to diet soda, they still get like their sweet fix. However, when they're switched to water, they're still seeking out sweet items throughout the course of their day from other calorie containing items. So they don't induce as much of a deficit. So it's not that diet sodas or, you know, artificially sweetened beverages are better than water. But they can be more efficacious when someone is dealing with a diet and has a taste for sweet items. They can help appease you and, and kind of satisfy that sweet craving. And it's something that I utilize during a diet myself. You know, I moderate my intake because I don't want to over-consume caffeine, but stuff like doesn't have caffeine in it like a diet spray is something that i utilize almost on a daily basis so it's something that i've seen work for myself especially because the fact that these are carbonate they fill up your stomach with air so they're going to help to stretch the gastric stretch receptors in the stomach and induce that satiety response they're great before a meal or if you go out to a bar like grab a diet soda you know what I mean? So these are things I don't believe should be demonized. If anyone out there is scared about it, there's tons of literature on it that you guys can look into and just realize, don't just look at the abstract, really go through the methods, go through the findings and really look through the entire course of the study and, and look for high, not observational studies because there are certain observational studies that will show that there's uh, an association between higher BMIs and diet diet drinks or uh, artificially sweetened beverages. And we have to realize that is what's called reverse causality, meaning that, yes, people that have a higher body mass and body weight will generally be more inclined to seek out diet products. But think about why they may be doing that. Think from a logical perspective. It's because they're trying to lose weight because they're in maybe an obese and an overweight category. And so they're more likely to be utilizing these types of products. However, it doesn't mean, you know, a lot of, you know, these proponents against artificial sweeteners will say, oh, well, that's, you know, association that means that artificial sweetened beverages cause people to be excessively fat. That's not the case. And that's just an exaggeration and an exacerbation of research. So go for more systematic reviews, meta-analysis, or trust, you know, go to people that you trust within the industry and see what they do. I mean, Jeremiah, do you ever use artificial, sweetened beverages or uh, supplements or anything of that sort.
0: Oh, absolutely, and, and on a very frequent basis. And I agree. I think it definitely helps adherence a large amount. I mean, same thing like a diet soda. That's what. You know, as of the last thirteen weeks, we'll go out. Katie will get a couple glasses of wine. Sometimes a bottle of wine, and say, "Okay, cool. I'm gonna <laughs> drink. I'm gonna drink a diet coke, right?" Um, and again, as a whole, I think it helps adherence for most individuals tremendously. We don't really have any research that seems to show it is harmful. The one thing that typically comes up is the, I think it was sucralose and rats and like people thinking that I believe sucralose gives you cancer. And it was like, just was it, was it? Okay. Yeah. So saccharin
1: has been linked, um, in rat studies also just to hit on that. Um, with certain, that's why I say we have to look at observational research and uh, Mm -hmm. we have to not discard observational research, but look at the hierarchy and the higher levels of research, including randomized control trials and meta-analyses, because these are done with more tightly controlled circumstances in humans, uh, with rat studies, a lot of what you see is that they use a toxic dose. So we have to realize that within the context of research, a lot of times they're trying to find the upper tolerable dose or the toxic dose. And so they're going to, going to utilize dosages that are far in excess of what anyone would consume. So I believe in one of the studies done on sucralose or aspartame. Don't quote me on this. It's one of those
0: aspartame actually that I'm thinking of.
1: Yeah. No, saccharin has been linked to cancer in rats. So I I know that for a fact. So saccharin is um, sweet and low, which many don't use anymore. And so that's like the pink packets. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to sucralose or aspartame, they've both been found to be uh, safe from a metabolic perspective, insulin secretion perspective, blood glucose, all those things. They help with glycemic control. However, there has been, it was either in sucralose or in aspartame where the lethal dose was actually equivalent to a long duration of of drinking between 18 to 22 cans of Coke a day. Now, if you do the math on that, a 12 ounce, say we do 20. So the average between 18, 22, 20 cans, That is 240 ounces of Coke, Diet Coke per day. That's close to two gallons. And so often when I have people, you know, will bring that that line of research up, I'll say, I can't even get you to drink two gallons of water, let alone two gallons of Diet Coke. You know what I mean? It's not realistic. It would be done over a long period of time. So it's the same thing with fruit, where there's a demonization of fruit. Really in the research, we don't see deleterious effects until you get over 150 grams of fructose from fruit on a consistent basis for over eight to 12 weeks. And keep in mind that most fruit is 50% fructose, 50% glucose. So that would be 300 grams of carbohydrates for 12 weeks from fruit itself. That would be so satiating that most people are never gonna hit that in the course of a week, let alone in 12 back-to-back weeks during an energy surplus. Cause you have to be in a surplus condition for that to contribute to uh, fat disp- uh, de- uh, deposition in the liver. So we have to realize that yes, there's certain research that does show certain outcomes. But is it realistic? I always come back to what's ecologically valid. What is translational research? What can you take? You know, when we're talking about ecological validity, how does it apply to the clients that you work with? And how realistic is it? Because if these are things that no one's ever going to do, you could take the findings all you want and report on them on social media and influence people, but you're kind of misleading them on the research findings. You're taking the abstract and you're not looking into all the other methods and the findings of it and presenting it with high levels of integrity. So anytime I talk about a research study, I always make sure that it's ecologically valid or what's also termed as externally valid, meaning you could apply it to the real world, like in the course of real clients in the real world, in their day-to-day lives.
0: Absolutely, it's interesting how things like that really get sensationalized, and then it's something that just comes up over and over and over. Where it's like, guys, we didn't have to, <laughs> we didn't have to make it like this. But um, we better wrap it up here, my man. Before I let you go, anything you have going on lately that you want to plug?
1: Uh same old stuff, man. Guys, anyone that would like to reach out to me, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at brandon de underscore. Uh, or my email, which is beatacruzfitness at gmail.com. And also I have a podcast uh, called the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. It drops every single Friday. So feel free to follow us on there and we would love to hear your feedback. And then any other questions you guys have, feel free to DM us. Uh, Jeremiah and I have un- been unable the last couple weeks to get together for a podcast, but uh, we-, we get awesome feedback whenever we do these. So we're going to c- try to get back to doing these consistently. And as always, Jeremiah, thank you for having me, my man.
0: Of course, dude. I always enjoy it. And I always enjoy the conversations I have. I don't think I get more DMs about any other conversations versus the ones we have here. They always lead to interesting conversations in my DMs. And a lot of times more questions for this podcast as well. So please, again, keep the questions coming. We really appreciate it. We really enjoy answering them. And we will catch you guys all next time.